Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Today we continue in a sermon series called Love, Sex, and the Text, and uh, we get to keep that conversation going that we started weeks ago that you can always catch up with uh, either online on our Facebook or YouTube pages with the videos or on our podcast. Uh, if, if today's your first time here, really encourage you, catch up with where we've been so you have a good sense of where we're going, because uh, if you've never heard a pastor talk about sex before, it's going to happen again, and uh, Welcome. Um, but just, just know, like, I'm, I'm up here today as, as one of your pastors, uh, grateful to have a church that lets us talk through these things, but also humbled that I have to be the one on stage talking through these things today. Um, and with great power comes great responsibility. So my hope is uh, that I don't mess this up too much and uh, we can all walk out of here with some good conversations to have. Today, specifically, as we keep this conversation going, we're going to talk about how we talk about sex and sexuality and relationships uh, from a Christian context. And if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, uh, this is for you. If you're here today because somebody dragged you along or you're just curious, uh, you get to listen in on how Christians in 2020 uh, jump into conversations like this. Uh, I was hanging out with a group of dads not too long ago, and uh, we were talking through having talks like this with our kids. And uh, some of us were more comfortable than others with that. And one dad in that conversation just asked the very pointed question, wait, but like, does the Bible even say anything about sex? And he was honestly asking the question because for a lot of people, uh, the Bible is a collection of a bunch of ancient books written to an ancient culture by ancient people. And the question is a fair one. Could those words tell us anything about our modern experience when it comes to sex and sexuality and love and relationships? Uh, and today, the best we can do is just look back at how the first church, how the early church in the first century talked about these things uh, to see if it can inform our conversations and the point of view in which we are approaching this topic. Uh, also, and it's just good for you to know, for the last 10 years, I've been visiting churches uh, across the country. I'm often brought in to talk on uh, the subject with uh, parents and grandparents, with children's ministry leaders and youth ministry leaders of how we're supposed to talk about sex and sexuality with our kids. Uh, and so today we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Not because everybody in the room here has kids in your home, but our church has kids in it. Uh, and we are doing life alongside parents that are trying to figure this thing out. And it's helpful for all of us to have a common vocabulary. And it helps us pray for the parents in our midst a little bit better uh, to know the conversations that they can be having and should be having with their kids. Uh, but first, we're just going to have an honest conversation about sex. Uh, because the American Evangelical Protestant Church has been historically bad at that conversation. And we get to change that. So if you have a Bible with you, I want us all to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a letter written by the first century church planter named Paul uh, to a local church he helped plant. We'll talk a little bit more about the context here in a minute. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. 
And if you're sitting next to your parents today, uh, it's going to get awkward, and I just apologize in advance. Uh, if you're watching at home or listening to a podcast in the car while you're driving, it's going to get real awkward. So just so you know, uh, this is where we're going. But First uh, Corinthians 7, verse 1, uh, Paul writes this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And that's a lot to take in. And you might be wondering, why in the world was the early church sending these kinds of messages to each other? And then B, like, why did they consider them sacred enough to hold on to? And then C, why is it that they then used texts like this and writings like this as spiritual instructions to other churches passing them on to the point that we now have them today, 2,000 years later, to examine. But I want us to take a, a moment and push pause on the how we talk about these things, and I want to talk about who we have these conversations with. And in discussions like these, it's helpful to know who's in the room, and so I'm going to ask you to participate here in a moment to think through when you were growing up and you had adults in your life, if you were raised by parents or other grown-ups, when they talked with you about sex and sexuality, I want you to think about how those talks went. Uh, and there's going to be some show of hands in here because we need to know that we're not alone in this experience. If you were raised in a family where your parents tried to have talks about sex with you or with your siblings, and they did like as good a job as they could, but you left afterwards like that was awkward and I'm not quite sure what they said. Anybody like your parents tried, but it was a little rough? Yeah, okay. How about this? Who grew up in a home where your parents had the talk with you and it was everything you needed to ever know because they did that good of a job and they were amazing and we should like all go meet them because you know, there's not a lot of them. How about this? Who had parents that were like mine and they just skipped it mostly entirely because it was way too awkward to talk through? Now hold on for a second, look around the room and if you're watching online, like there's a lot of hands that are up and you can put your hands down, but you need to know this. We're dealing with a generation of adults who were not taught how to have this conversation well. We were not given a good vocabulary for this conversation or a blueprint to go into it at all. There are some of us who as grownups, like take, talking to our kids out of the equation, we don't know how to talk to our spouses about sex. And friends, we, we get to do things a different way. And today we get to walk away from here with a common vocabulary. And you need to know this, just because you haven't had voices of wisdom in your life speaking into this doesn't mean that you can't start seeking those voices out today. If you're a Christian, one of the primary calls on our lives is to live a life of humility. What that means, among other things, is we need to learn how to submit ourselves to voices of authority in our lives. Peter, who is one of Jesus' friends in the first century, who also became a, an early church pastor, uh, wrote it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He said uh, to Christians then, and I think even to Christians today, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, and then he quotes from the Old Testament and says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud and shows favor to 
the humble. We are called to have other voices speaking into our lives. If you go through life thinking you have it all figured out, you're, you're missing a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and I just want to give you just a couple markers to think through. Uh, if you're wondering, do I have voices of wisdom in my life? Here are just four things, like checkboxes to go. Yes, yes, oh, maybe not, and we can go from there. But the first thing is voices of wisdom in your life need to be grounded in the teachings of Jesus and the early church. Uh, in order for someone to point you to Jesus, they probably need to be heading that direction as well. Uh, and so that's, that's the hope, is voices of wisdom are anchored in Jesus' teachings and the teachings of the early church. Wisdom voices in our lives should include people that we've met and who know us. It's not to say you can't learn from a video or from a book or somebody standing on a stage with a microphone, but here's the thing. We can only talk to generality. Someone who knows you, who knows the path you're on, can speak to specifics, and that's wisdom. That's wisdom. You need to have people who know you. And thirdly, they need to have permission to be voices of wisdom in your life. There are a lot of people around you who want to tell you what to do, but you need to actually vocalize permission to someone to say, hey, I would love your wisdom in this area. And that's important. And last, fourthly, wisdom voices know the road ahead and what it looks like. Peter specifically tells us to submit to the teachings of those who are older than us. Those who've experienced more than us, they've been through enough life to speak with hope and with confidence. Peers are important voices in our lives, but they are not intended to be the primary voices of wisdom for us. And what I'm about to say next, I mean, if you're on Twitter, please don't tweet it. And like, if you're looking for something to put on Facebook today, like not this one, okay? Out of context, this doesn't sound very good at all, but I think it's 100% true. Uh, your friends are dummies. They, they just, they are. I love them. They're lovable dummies, right? And, and mine too. And some are in this room and they know I think they're dummies. But like, here's the great thing about that. We get to be dummies alongside each other. That's what peer relationships are for. We do life together. We remind each other we're not alone. We do a terrible job at thinking about the future because we haven't been there yet. And those of us who've raised kids or those of us who've been kids before, you know this because parents teach kids you don't get wisdom from the playground. Don't ask the kids on the playground about where babies come from. Like, they have no idea. Stop it, right? We don't look for wisdom on the playground. And yet, as adults, that's often what we find ourselves doing in a culture that has gotten rid of authoritative voices, and we mostly live in echo chambers with people who believe the same thing as, as we do. We've lost out on having voices of wisdom in our life. We've substituted it for peers. And if you forget what it's like to have playground friends influencing your choices— I, I want to show you a video clip that, that's just a good reminder of, oh, that's what's happening when we let our peers tell us what good ideas are, okay? And so uh, we're going to check in with Ralphie and Flick and uh, the rest of our friends from A Christmas Story from 1983. Uh, it's going to be up on the screens. Take a look, and we'll jump back in. And you consider what it looks like to have these as voices of wisdom in your life. Let's watch together. exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Huh, are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole that's dumb. That's cause you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh yeah? Yeah! Like double dog dare ya! Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally the coup de grave of all dares 
the sinister triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you! Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Come on, kid. <laughs> well, go on, smartass, and do it. I'm going, I'm going. Flick's spine stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. playground friends, the ones who would triple dog dare us to lick a frozen pole in the middle of winter, shape our views of love, sex, and relationships more than the voices of wisdom from the early church captured in the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. So for a moment today, let's check all of our assumptions at the door. Let's, let's assume we know nothing if we've just been educated by our playground friends. And let's spend time with some of the more explicit words that Paul ever wrote on the topic of sex and some of the radical teachings that you might not hear on the playground. First, I recognize it might surprise you to find out that the New Testament church talked openly about sex when they gathered together. But it wasn't just sex they talked about. The, the letter to the church in Corinth addresses a bunch of things that they had actually written a letter to ask Paul about. And in Paul's reply, which is what we have, he talks about divisions in the church. He talks about questions they have about food and sex, which are two very important topics. Uh, he addresses uh, questions about how the church should gather and what that looks like. And he, he ties it all together with the hope we have in the resurrection. What we have is a response to questions they were asking that they felt like were appropriate to ask each other in a church setting. And I want us to go through today's passage again with a lens focused on how the early church talked about sex. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Paul writes this, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Something you need to know about Paul is this, throughout the his career in ministry, throughout his entire ministry, he remained single. And so, of course, as they have questions, looking around at the world around them going, gosh, isn't it just better than to be single? They go to the guy who is living that. They go to the guy who knows them well, who has been living out the experience of a single person. And Paul knew Corinth well. If you go to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 18, you can actually read about Paul's life in Corinth as he uh, planted a church there and lived there for over a year and a half. So Paul would have known the city well enough to know that up on a mountain, there was the temple 
to the goddess Aphrodite, right? To the love goddess. And he would have known that in that community, uh, historians will tell us that there were over a thousand temple prostitutes who were engaged in uh, prostitution at that temple, uh, young men and young women. And that culture, that society considered it an act of ancient worship to solicit those prostitutes, those sex slaves who lived at that temple. Corinth was a port city. And so men from all around the region came to port there on boats and went straight for the temple. This is the context in which Paul is writing. They're going, gosh, this place is messy. Wouldn't it be better to just be single? And Paul answers that. But first he actually starts with marriage. Verse two, Paul writes this, but since sexual immorality is occurring, they are in Corinth, right? Each man should have sexual relationship, relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now there have been times when men in the church have used this text to subjugate and objectify their wives. If that's the home you grew up in, or if that is the context you find yourself today, you need to know that was not the original intent or understanding of this passage. Instead, the call to mutual submission in healthy relationships is a crucial tenet for Christ followers. And you might wonder, well, when it says here, and he writes, like, uh, they should fulfill their marital duty, is that, yeah, that's sex. That's what that is, okay? So, like, when Paul's writing that, that is 100% what he means, uh, but what he writes is that it's what the early church believed. It's the husband's job to satisfy the sexual needs of his wife. And likewise, it's the wife's duty to satisfy the sexual needs of her husband. This was a radical teaching in the church then as much as it is today. This lens of mutual submission in marriage and in the marital bed specifically should inform the way we talk about sex and the way we interpret conversations about sex in the world around us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He could have, he could have, and that's enough and we're good, we'll move on, but he keeps going. Verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. That wasn't the radical part. What he writes next is, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Not only are Christian couples supposed to live into the ideal of mutual submission, but Paul goes on to say that in marriage, your body is not your own. That's to say your primary drive in pursuing sex with your spouse should be their fulfillment and not just yours. Think about how sex is sold to us in movies, in television, in advertisements, in conversations on the playground. This teaching from the early church that they talked openly about and passed along as sacred, this is radical. And not only that, but Paul's bold enough to tell married couples that their sex lives are as spiritual as they are physical. That is, husbands and wives are to have sex regularly as a way to help their spouses avoid falling into temptation and sin. Now, Paul lays it out in this order. First, understand that your spouse's needs outweigh your own. Then with that in mind, only take breaks from having sex for short seasons in order to devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together as soon as you can. Now, if you think that's radical, hold on tight because Paul goes one step further and he actually goes back to their original question about singleness in verse six. 
I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. In Paul's worldview, and a belief that was held by the first followers of Jesus, is that singleness is as sacred as marriage. In fact, Paul's hope and his gold standard is, in fact, singleness. Think about how radically different that is from the vision of a fulfilled adult life that we get from the culture around us and even from the American Protestant Evangelical Church. Imagine a world in which this was the radical view of sexuality that we taught our children. Imagine creating space for single people in our churches, not out of hope that they would find a spouse, but as a way of honoring their gift of singleness and letting them speak wisdom into the lives of those of us who have not been given that gift. Single person here today, your singleness is a gift to you and to the rest of us. Widow and widower, we have so much to learn from you and from the road that you've traveled. To the person whose parents and friends make you feel incomplete because you are single, the pressure that they are putting on you is not Christian. Next week, we're going to gather together again. We're going to continue this series. We're going to go more into what the Bible says about singleness. But for now, we need to lean into this radical teaching and let it influence the ways in which we talk about sex. Our primary lens for conversations about Christian sex should be influenced by these three radical teachings from the early church that I think can still impact our lives today. That healthy marriages are relationships of mutual submission, where sexual activity is regular and focused on the needs of the other person, and that singleness is sacred and spiritual. So let's take that lens and talk about how we pass on a healthy view of sex and sexuality to the next generation. I'm gonna take what usually takes like an hour to cover with a congregation and do this in like a speed moment, but I, but I think it matters, and so we're gonna go there. I recognize we don't all have these ages of kids in our homes, but it's gonna give you a sense of what you need to be praying for and the parents in our midst, okay? So for, uh, for the four stages we're gonna talk about, uh, there are four primary dials that you wanna make sure you're turning higher than the others during these stages, okay? It doesn't mean you don't talk about all of them but you definitely talk about these ones in these stages. So when a kid is in preschool, preschool age, from ages three to five, the primary question the grown-ups raising them should be asking is, what do I want to tell them about their body? Okay? Know this, that, that at every phase we talk through, the sex talk is like baggage. We don't want to give our kids more than they can carry. Okay? Um, but this should be a series of talks that build on each other. And the first ones should be framing for our littlest ones what we want them to believe about their body. And that's that God made their body. Their bodies are good. Their bodies are not icky. Their bodies are not things they need to be ashamed of. We need to teach our children, even at these ages, to use specific words. And I'm gonna say them, like penis and like vagina, right? And, and here's why. Here's why. If our kids are carrying the shame of those words, how are they going to be middle schoolers that know how to have those conversations they need to have with us? How are they going to be healthy grown-ups if we don't teach them that those words are actually okay? That God made them and he did it on purpose? Some of you are like, the pastor just said those words. <laughs> Welcome to real life. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, it's going to keep going. I'm going to say other words too. Here we go. So um, as, as kids get into the elementary ages, okay, so from ages six to nine, the primary question those of us raising elementary-aged kids should be asking is, what do we want to tell them about sex? What do we want to tell them about sex? We need to remind them that God is a creator. He even made sex. 
it's not bad and weird. It's for grownups. It's not for them, but it's a thing. And, and here's why we start that conversation. When you talk to kids early about sex, it creates a platform of trust for later years. We plan for stages of these conversations so that later on when they have questions, they know the path back to us and they know that we're safe people to talk to. It's during this age we wanna make sure we affirm their gender, but not necessarily that they're doing all the gender role things that society has said that that gender should do, but we just affirm that God made them who they are and we're excited about that. And also during these ages, and this might freak you out a little bit because it did for me until I was raising kids through it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. Uh, you need to start having talks about pornography. And I can see some of your faces. I know, right? But here's the thing. Statistically, they say most kids are exposed to pornography for the first time around the third grade, okay? So if you've not given your kids a vocabulary of what good pictures are and bad pictures, if you've not helped them not learn rules, but strategies for when they see something, what to do and who to tell, then the people teaching them those things are their playground friends and they're all dummies. We love them, but they should not be the ones leading this conversation. There's a lot at stake here, gang. Kids at that age are not great at self-control, okay? And the world they're living in is different than the world we were living in, right? Uh, I grew up in a world that did not have one of these. When I was uh, having a sleepover at one of my buddy's houses, we were in elementary school, he knew where his brother kept a magazine. And I remember looking at it. And I remember going, this is amazing and terrible and what is happening? And then we took that magazine and we buried it in a field outside of our house because we didn't know what to do. And we were in like fourth grade. What do you, you bury it, right? Oh my gosh, you just hide it. Um, and his brother was never going to say anything because what, he's going to tell his mom like, hey, the, the guy's right? No, it was cool. Uh, we got it all figured out. And here's the thing. So I saw it for that moment and I still remember it. When our kids see things, they have access. Even if you don't give them these things, their friends have them. And the things they're seeing are things they can't unsee. And you have to give them strategies for how to navigate that. This is not a sermon about why you shouldn't have children, uh, but this is absolutely <laughs> a conversation about the ways we should be praying for and supporting the parents who have kids in this age. When you start hitting middle school and, and preteen years from the ages of 10 to 13, we need to we need to talk with them about purity and integrity, right? We need to talk about uh, having integrity in, in these four areas, that we honor God with our body, right? That we turn our eyes from worthless things, that we are called to renew our minds for good, and we should guard our hearts above all else. Preteen and middle school students are not great at self-control. Like, I don't know if you know that. Uh, and so that means you have to actually have specific conversations about things like masturbation, I know, he said that word too. I'm, I'm as surprised as you are. Uh, you need to talk with them about sexting. More teenagers now are sending explicit pictures on their phones to the opposite sex before they hold hands with them because it feels less intimate. You need to have these conversations with kids in your home if they are these ages so you get to set the pathway for that conversation. As our kids hit high school, 14 plus, we're getting ready to launch them into adulthood. The question we need to be asking is, what do we still need to bring up? We know this about people, but it's especially true about teenagers. They don't care what you know unless they know that you care about them. And that's why building a pathway through these younger years matters so much for, for these high school years. But if you haven't started yet, you can start today. Remind those kids how much you care about them and ask personal questions. Dads, it's okay to ask your sons, 
hey, so uh, like, how's the masturbation thing going? Don't do it in and out. Like, don't do it like out in public. But you can talk to them about that because if you don't talk with them, their playground friends will, and they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and, and it's not just a boys thing. Moms, have those conversations with your girls. The pornography thing isn't just boys, it's girls too. And you, you gotta get ahead of those conversations, gang. And, and here's the thing, we plan ahead for our kids' path to college. Don't be afraid to plan ahead for their path to healthy sexual identities. And here's what we can do as a church to make safe space for this to happen. We can talk about it. That's part of why we do series like this, so we can get past the awkward and get into the real. We can provide role models who live lives with honesty and integrity for our kids to talk to when they don't want to talk to us because it's awkward. That's cool. We'll give them other people. We need to create an environment of grace and forgiveness. Our kids need to know that our home and our church is the safest place to come back to because we're a people of second chances. And we need to remember that something is better than nothing, gang. Just because somebody didn't create a pathway for you and you're starting from scratch doesn't mean to start, that you can't start. You should start. You get to be possibly that transitional generation that starts talking about healthy sexual identities with our kids, that they might grow up in a different world than we did. We want to do more as a church than just graduate sober virgins. We want to launch grown-ups into a world where they know how to be grown-ups and talk about grown-up things. As we wrap our time together, you might feel like your life is too messy to take steps towards health in this area. Maybe you feel like your partner won't ever be someone who could embrace the discipline of mutual submission. Maybe you can't imagine a world in which it would be safe to trust your, your partner with your body or that you could believe that they might see their body as a gift to you. Maybe your singleness feels more like a burden than a gift, and you can't imagine that ever changing. Maybe you've made too many mistakes in this area to believe that you could ever be a voice of wisdom in someone's life. If there are things creeping into your brain of why this can't be true for you, you need to know those are not the voices from God. Those voices are not the Holy Spirit. Whatever is telling you today that you can't, or that your spouse won't, or it never could be, those thoughts are not the voice of hope that God wants to speak into your life. There is healing even for you through the power of Jesus's resurrection. Your next step is asking God to help and praying for the humility to seek out voices of wisdom in your life who could begin helping you find healing in this area. For those of us who are ready to take the step after that, to learn to be a community of believers that believe that sex is sacred enough that we should have healthy conversations about it, we need to begin the practice of talking about it with voices of wisdom to guide us, playground voices to be on the journey alongside us, and seeking to be a voice for those who are younger than us, painting a very different picture of sexuality than the world around them is doing for them. For all of us, most of this comes down to this question. Are you ready to make Jesus the Lord of your entire life? Have you tried your way of doing life long enough that you're ready to try living into his teachings, believing that what Jesus has for you is better than what you could come up with on your own. If we bring our sexuality to the foot of the cross and we submit it to him, do we actually believe that he can resurrect that into something beautiful? Giving Jesus our whole lives means nothing is off limits, which also means there's not one part of our lives that God can't heal, and there is hope in that. Amen? And let me pray for you. God, 
we thank you for being here today. We thank you that your spirit is alive and, and moving in this room. And, and as we move into just a response to you and to your love and worship, would you begin to even bring healing now? God, that we would experience your love in new ways, that we would find hope in your name and in your presence. God, we love you. We thank you for your word and how it guides us. We pray this in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.